Hello, and welcome to another episode of In a Perfect Policy. My name is Kevin Lauderjong, and I'm here with Jenny Bratbird. Hello. And today we are talking with Shaughnessy Naughton, founder and president of 314 Action, an organization dedicated to electing more STEM candidates to office and advocating for science-based policy solutions. Uh, Shaughnessy was formerly a chemist and a business owner. She also ran for Congress in Pennsylvania. And we ask her about everything from what it's like to run for office, why she switched gears, and why it's important to have scientists represented in government. All right, Shaughnessy, can you hear me? Yes. Thanks for joining for In a Perfect Policy. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm, uh, I'm pleased to be with you. So I'm going to just start by having you uh, talk about 314 Action. You know, what was the genesis of the organization? What prompted you to make the jump from chemistry, if I'm not mistaken, to government? Sure. Um, well, I, I earned my degree in chemistry. I worked in breast cancer research and drug discovery, um, and then actually got pulled into my family's business and ran that for over a decade. And in 2013, I was growing increasingly concerned with the lack of action on climate change and the fact that the U.S. Congress had voted, you know, I think over 40 times to take away people's health care rather than try to fix the Affordable Care Act. And what became obvious to me was that these were not problems with science. These were problems with policy and that the only way we were going to fix that was to change the policymakers. Um, So with a very naive understanding of what was involved in running for Congress, I I stepped up and decided to run for Congress. And um, I learned a lot. Ultimately, I was not successful. But one of the things I learned is that it's uh, it's really hard to break into politics when you don't come from a traditional political background, and that there's a real lack of diversity uh, in among elected uh, leaders. You know, at the time, I think there were more talk radio show hosts in Congress than scientists and engineers. And so I founded 314 Action uh, to give scientists a peek behind the curtain as to what's actually involved in running for office and uh, to unite the scientific community to, to support them, because uh, it takes more than just good ideas to, to be successful in a run for Congress. And it's 314. I was saying 314. 314, uh, the first digits of pi, is that right? That's right. That's right. And also an irrational number. So Ah. there we go. (laughs) Is that a statement about the irrationality of politics? Whoa, meta. Uh, Or or the the challenges of of bringing these non-traditional candidates into the political fray. Uh, And you jumped jumped straight. uh, You ran for U.S. Congress, right? I did. I did. Uh, I I often say running for Congress is not dipping your toe in the water. It is jumping right in the deep end, and uh, it is not really a rational process. I mean, there's a lot that that you can't really anticipate until you've actually done it or or worked with people who have. So, um, kind of curious about that. Do you use any scientific evidence in your process for putting up candidates? Uh, Well, we do a lot of analysis on um, voting patterns, demographics, where we think things are trending uh, when we're looking at districts to recruit scientists to run in. Um, And then, of course, we do polling and focus groups to, um, you know, to see how things are, are working on a national level, but also on specific district levels. And I think part of the allure of these scientific candidates is that they come from outside the political system and that 
you know, their, their scientific expertise gives them credibility on issues that extend beyond just their field of expertise. And that really resonates with voters who are fed up with what is going on or, or frankly, the, the lack of delivery on things that are really important to voters. Yeah, so I, I, I toyed with how to uh, ask this, but I think I'm just going to leave it kind of open-ended. So what, what are your sort of requirements or stipulations? What threshold do you have for somebody running to be endorsed by 314? Well, our, our criteria is that is uh, people with a STEM background, so science, technology, engineering, or math, um, and with a pro-science agenda. And at the federal level, we generally gauge that through a question on climate change, uh, accepting the scientific consensus on climate change and the need for action on it. So we don't dictate a platform to the candidates. We recognize that it's a it's a big, diverse country and that different areas and different representatives are going to have different priorities and, and values that they want to bring to that. Um, but what we think that these scientific candidates bring, in addition to that diversity of experiences, um, you know, is a willingness to base their decisions on facts and evidence, and we think that's incredibly important. So it's less about what exact field their degree is in, but more that analytical thinking and that willingness to base their decisions on facts and evidence rather than, you know, perhaps an ideological persuasion. So 314 Action isn't promoting any particular issue other than maybe sort of generally accepting that climate change is a thing, it's not promoting sort of a specific way of dealing with climate change or specific policies. That's correct. That's correct. Um, You know, we do help to promote bills that are pending, that especially people that we've endorsed, that we've elect, um, are supporting, but uh, we don't actually dictate a platform for them. When you say people with science backgrounds, STEM backgrounds, does that, I'm curious what the boundaries of that are. Do you include social scientists? Do you include economists? So we do not, and this is not a uh, one is better than the other. It's that what I saw was that there was a real lack of people with hard science backgrounds um, in office, and I thought that um, creating this organization could help bring more people with hard science backgrounds into office. And when you think about some of the most important issues facing our country, whether it's action on climate change or healthcare or cybersecurity or election security or nuclear, hopefully non-proliferation, uh, having those those um, type of people actually at the governing table, I think, is incredibly important. Yeah, and I mean, the, and the reason I ask is because I think it seems to me as I kind of look into evidence-based policymaking and initiatives to further evidence-based policymaking, um, I quickly find how far that extends. You know, it's, it's it seems to go beyond climate change um, and stem cells, these sort of hot topic science issues, but also into, you know, income inequality. And I mean, I, I think you've kind of said that you don't dictate policy outside of the hard STEM background, but I could imagine that somebody looks very well to evidence when it comes to economic policy, but say disregards evidence on climate change. And then is there any sort of conundrum there, you know? Um, Well, I mean, I I think part of what STEM people do is look at the evidence, whether it's on an economic issue or a healthcare issue or a straight up science issue. And that's why 
it is less about their specific field of expertise, but really the, the training that goes into a STEM education um, and the ability to analyze data, look at the raw data, um, and not be, you know, not be afraid to, to tackle those issues. Um, that's part of what we think they bring to, um, to the act of governing. So on a slightly different note, I'm kind of inter- interested, you've talked about like the importance of getting scientists into public office because there's so few of them. Do you also look at the candidates you're supporting to try and find more underrepresented minorities? Well, that has definitely been uh, something that we are interested in. And particularly um, at the state and local level, you really see that representation of America, uh, you know, in our candidates, a lot of first-generation Americans. Um, I think in 2018, over 50% of our endorsed candidates were were women as well as well-represented in, I guess, traditional minorities. At the federal level, there still are barriers, although we are seeing those break down. Um, you know, the reality is to run for Congress, it takes millions of dollars, and you either have to uh, write that check yourself or be able to fundraise. And when you don't come from those traditional political backgrounds with the networks that they come with, it can be hard to do that, which is part of what we are trying to do as an organization is to to break down those barriers by really harnessing um, the power of our grassroots movement. We have over 1.1 million members, and um, a large part of how we fund our organization as well as support our candidates is through our grassroots network. I find it interesting that your description of the barriers to entering public life are very similar to the same types of barriers that we hear described for people entering science, minorities and underrepresented groups. (laughs) It, it is true. I mean, um, you know, I, I was the first generation in my family to go to college, and I went to college back in the 90s. And I think things have opened up more now, and I think there is greater awareness. It depends on the university, but on helping those first-generation college students uh, navigate the unknowns. You know, when you, when you don't have that institutional knowledge, um, it can be very hard, whether it's politics or education. Uh, all right. So your, your site, besides having a bunch of candidates that um, 314 Action has endorsed, you also have a list of STEM trailblazers. What are those? Well, um, thankfully, there were some people with STEM backgrounds already in uh, in in the U.S. House and Senate. Not not a whole lot, um, but those are the STEM trailblazers. Those are the folks that were elected prior to the founding of Three One Four. But we want to recognize the work that they're doing, as well as the help that they've provided our candidates in, in mentoring and endorsing and and um, helping make introductions for them. So. Just sort of curious about what's coming for the future. How are you gearing up for 2020? Well, um, you might have heard there's a presidential, right? <laughs> um, huh. So we are we are not getting uh, directly involved in the presidential, but there is definitely a lot at stake. Um, in 2019, we were proud to help elect uh, four new scientists to the Virginia legislature, and that's incredibly important when you're thinking about um, the 2020 election and redistricting that will happen after the next census. Um, Virginia had a, 
uh, court-mandated redrawing of some of the mm-hmm. legislative districts because it was so gerrymandered. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking at the federal level in 2020 as well as, as state races uh, for that reason. Um, you know, we're very excited about the Senate. We have already endorsed astronaut Mark Kelly running in Arizona, uh, John Hickenlooper, former governor and also a geologist running for Senate in Colorado. Um, we've endorsed a physician uh, running as an independent in Alaska, Al Gross, and, uh, and I think we will have more Senate endorsements as, uh, as time proceeds. And we've also had some really exciting congressional candidates that are taking on big challenges but are putting together strong, strong campaigns. All right. So I want to I wanna talk to you some about trust in science and partisan views of science. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just sort of paint a small narrative and get your take on it, I think. So, um, because I, I talk to people about this a fair amount, and I usually get uh, answers of, well, science has been political for a lo- long time, which is true, and or, you know, science isn't partisan, science is truth, and truth is. But, you know, if you go back and you look at, you know, at least in this century, 2001, President Bush has his first presidential address sort of denouncing stem cell research. Um, five years later, Al Gore comes out with Inconvenient Truth. You have Obama making, uh, you know, lots of overtures to incorporation of science and policy. Um, and there is, there is a narrative, it seems to me, of partisanship in science. And I'm not sure if it's because the hot topic issues like climate change and stem cells are polarizing or have become polarized. But is that something that you're concerned about at all? Oh, I'm very concerned, and I'm especially um, concerned at the reaction among the scientific community to take this, to continue to try to um, take the traditional approach that science is above politics and therefore scientists shouldn't be involved in politics, because frankly, that uh, approach has failed us. Right. Um, You know, when we have elected leaders denying the scientific consensus, um, that is that should be of concern to everyone. Um, and the reality is, is that um, partisans on both sides use and manipulate science where it's convenient or inconvenient for them, mm-hmm. um, which is why it is all the more important for scientists to put out clear statements and to realize there, there is a different way to communicate with the general public than when they're presenting their research to their colleagues that study in their in their same field you know there there is a way to communicate uh with the general public to convey the truth um without confusing them and i think that that's really important for scientists to think about how to do that whether it's just explaining their their research and the possible applications or why it's relevant or important um or actually explaining why something is right or wrong. And, you know, I think um, just going back to that traditional attitude, I think among scientists it was, you know, we'll just put the evidence out there and the evidence will speak for itself. And that doesn't, (laughs) sometimes the evidence needs a little help, uh, or at least the public needs help interpreting it. And, you know, it's not something unique to scientists per se. I think it's, 
I think it's something that people who don't want to be involved in partisan politics often think that that is the best way to handle a solution, and you can look to the, the Mueller report. And <laughs> you ask a Democratic member of Congress or a Republican member of Congress what it said, and you get two very different answers. And so I think the public really needed to hear from Mueller as to what exactly he meant by what he was saying. What, you know, what should we do next? Um, not that he's going to be able to make it happen, but tell us what your actual um, advice is for next steps. And I think that science have a, a similar role to play and that they need to, they need to prescribe those next steps when, uh, when it makes sense. I think this is sort of, this is part of my concern, which is that, you know, if in a, in an ideal world, we did have more science communicators who were as outspoken about climate change, just as a predominant example, uh, concurrent or proportional to the scientific consensus about its urgency, that because it's already been sort of binned in society's brains, collective brain, as a democratic issue, like democratic party issue, that the more people you have communicating it, just the more it's just digging heels in the sand and we're not actually bridging divides that much. Um, and some of the polling I've been tracking over the last few years uh, suggests some red flags um, in this area. I mean, science has enjoyed 40% trust, institutional trust from the public for decades. Um, it's one of the highest and longest lasting, most consistent. But that trust doesn't necessarily track in a parallel way between conservatives and liberals. And generally, scientists themselves as a demographic are very liberal I guess that's my concern is, you know, if we even have all the science communicators in the world, it falls on deaf ears if it becomes sort of the other tribe. I think so. And I think it's important that we communicate in a way that doesn't further tribalize people. Um, and I think that can be done. Um, part of, um, you know, there's there's a lot I'm not happy about with this administration, Um but one thing that really upsets me is that it seems that it is given a lot of Democrats uh, what they feel is licensed to say really horrible things about people that disagree with them um, because uh, the president speaks so terrible about people that disagree with them, uh, with him. And I think that that is not the lesson we should be taking from, um, you know, from, from this administration or taking into the future because you don't convince people uh, that you are right by yelling at them or insulting them. Um, you know, there there is a way to get through to people, um, and it's it's really it's not even just about facts and figures. It's listening and uh, building relationships and um, and establishing trust. Yeah. So, is this part of your training for scientists uh, running for office? Uh, part of what we do in the in the training uh, a lot is focus on communications because I think the default for a lot of scientists is um, you know they're very good at reciting their CVs, <laughs> um, but that is not or their cover letters you know their mm -hmm. their resumes. But that alone is not what is going to convince voters. You have to be able to tell a story and relate on a more emotional level, um, whether it's convincing them on an issue or about yourself. And so that is something that we do uh, put a lot of effort and emphasis into. 
Do you think there's such a thing as a scientific value? You know, I thought that that Americans, the reason why they have such a high value of scientists um, is because uh, they value uh, the truth that they represent. Um, but what we saw in polling was more that they, they valued scientists because of their ability to evaluate facts and evidence and base their conclusions on, on that and the fact that they're problem solvers. Um, so the truth is part of it, but it's not the first thing. I mean, the first thing really is, is more the, the problem solving. So I'm kind of interested. Do you think that kind of ties into what you are talking about earlier with politicians sort of needing a lot of resources to be able to run sort of the idea that science, uh, scientists are outsiders and they're not going to be sort of influenced by these other, like, lobbying factors? I think that's a big part of why these science candidates are resonating with voters. Um, you know, I, I, one of the conclusions I drew from the 2016 election was some people voted for Trump because they liked what he was saying that he wanted to do. And, um, but I think some people voted for him because they were fed up with the system. And, um, you know, <laughs> whether it was good or bad, he was definitely going to change how things were done. And, um, I think scientists represent that in a much more productive and uh, fact-based way uh, that they, you know, that they will look at things differently. They were, will approach things differently and they will focus on getting things done. And I think that's, that's why, you know, voters are uh, electing them. Mm-hmm. So kind of tying with that, um, where does 314 Action get most of its funding from and does it sort of ask anything of its candidates? Um, well, we do have a, a questionnaire that they fill out. Um, you know, it's not good enough to just have a, a scientific background. Um, they need to be putting together a viable campaign, which we, you know, which we help with and also support of, you know, what I said as a pro-science agenda. We get our funding mostly through our small dollar donor network. In 2018, we raised five point. $2 million overall, $3.8 million of that came from our small dollar network. Um, and we've only continued to expand that. Uh, so we're really proud of that. And, and like I said, we don't dictate a, a platform to the, to the candidates. Um, and then, of course, once elected, we do try to help promote the legislation that they're supporting. You know, one thing that we've really been interested in seeing get passed is the Scientific Integrity Act mm-hmm. um, yep. that representatives... Paul Tonko from New York has written. So, so that's kind of how we work with them once elected, and that's how we get our funding. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Scientific Integrity Act? Sure. As I mentioned before, um, you know, partisans on both sides uh, have been known to manipulate science or ignore science when it is inconvenient. And so the Scientific Integrity Act uh, would actually put into law that political appointees, cabinet appointees actually have to listen to um, what the science says and not be able to ignore it. So you you mentioned some uh, polling that you guys have done over there. Um, I'm curious if there are any gems from that that you're willing to share with us. Yeah, no. um, You know, one of the things I I thought that uh, the polling would show that people valued scientists because they um, see them as honest brokers. Um, but one thing that we saw in the polling was that 
that that may be the case, but the number one thing that they're looking for um, from scientists is that they're independent, trained problem solvers, and then honest. Um, uh, so I, I found that very interesting. You know, when you look at, um, let's just pick members of Congress, even members of Congress or elected leaders that deny scientific consensus on climate change, none of them say that they don't like science. Everybody loves science. Everybody loves science right. for, um, you know, the, the hope that it brings uh, and the inspiration it brings to the future. Um, and so I think that there are certain, you know, things that are politicized. Um, but I think the way we change that is by holding elected leaders accountable. Um, you know, politicians are in the business of self-preservation. And when it becomes harder for them to get reelected because they're being held accountable for positions that really are indefensible, like denial of, uh, you know, of the importance of action on climate change, they'll stop doing it. It's, it's that simple. Um, so it really is incumbent upon us as voters and as citizens to hold them accountable. And that means calling your representatives, um, whether you like what they're doing or dislike what they're doing. You know, even the most, you know, quote-unquote, anti-science member of Congress knows how to count. And they count the calls and emails that come into their office. And uh, I really do believe that if more people uh, stepped up and got involved, whether, you know, it's, it's voting, uh, contacting their representatives, um, or running for office, that we would have a better system and we, would ha- we you know, wouldn't tolerate politicians that, um, put out these really indefensible positions. So the question we always ask uh, our guest on In a Perfect Policy is, for wherever area you're working on, if you could have a magic wand and enact any sort of policy change, what would you do? And here it could be either in the political sphere of how you'd wish politics would change or how you wish scientists would change. Well, I, I, I do think that... Um, Scientists are changing, especially the younger generation. I think they are uh, increasingly interested and aware of the importance of talking to the public about about science. Um, and that gives me great encouragement for the future. Um, when I give talks on university campuses and grad students are asking me if they can run for, for school board, um, that, that, makes, that, that makes me really hopeful about the future. Well, Shaughnessy, I think that's a great note to end on. If people are interested in 314 Action and want to get involved, do you have any recommendations for what they should check out, where they should go? Sure. Uh, Well, we are on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Our website is 314action.org. We also have a podcast uh, called Clean Air. Uh, We are on break now. We just finished our, our first season, and we will be launching our second season early in 2020. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me.